3. They restrict their claim to the stopping of cargoes destined for or coming from the enemy's territory. 5. As regards cotton, full particulars of the arrangements contemplated have already been explained. It will be admitted that every possible regard has been had to the legitimate interests of the American cotton trade. 6. Finally, in reply to the penultimate paragraph of Your Excellency's note, I have the honor to state that it is not intended to interfere with neutral vessels carrying enemy cargo of non-contraband nature outside European waters, including the Mediterranean. Here follows the text of the order in council, which already has been printed. American Ambassador, London, VI, French Government's Answer. The French Government transmitted the following message, Paris, March 14, 1915. French government replies as follows, in a letter dated March 7th Your Excellency was good enough to draw my attention to the views of the government of the United States regarding the recent communications from the French and British governments concerning a restriction to be laid upon commerce with Germany. According to Your Excellency's letter, the declaration made by the Allied governments presents some uncertainty as regards its application concerning which the government of the United States desires to be enlightened in order to determine what attitude it should take. At the same time Your Excellency notified me that, while granting the possibility of using new methods of retaliation against the new use to which submarines have been put, the government of the United States was somewhat apprehensive that the Allied belligerents might if their action is to be construed as constituting a blockade capture in waters near America any ships which might have escaped the cruisers patrolling European waters. In acknowledging receipt of Your Excellency's communication I have the honor to inform you that the Government of the Republic has not failed to consider this point as presented by the Government of the United States, and I beg to specify clearly the conditions of application, as far as my government is concerned of the declaration of the Allied Governments, as well set forth by the Federal Government. The old methods of blockade cannot be entirely adhered to in view of the use Germany has made of her submarines and also by reason of the geographical situation of that country, in answer to the challenge to the neutrals as well as to its own adversaries contained in the declaration, by which the German imperial government stated that it considered the seas surrounding Great Britain and the French coast on the channel as a military zone, and warned neutral vessels not to enter the same on account of the danger they would run. The Allied governments have been obliged to examine what measures they could adopt to interrupt all maritime communication with the German Empire and thus keep it blockaded by the naval power of the two allies. At the same time, however, safeguarding as much as possible the legitimate interests of neutral powers and respecting the laws of humanity which no crime of their enemy will induce them to violate, the government of the Republic, therefore, reserves to itself the right of bringing into a French or allied port any ship carrying a cargo presumed to be of German origin, destination, or ownership, but it will not go to the length of seizing any neutral ship except in case of contraband. The discharged cargo shall not be confiscated, in the event of a neutral proving his lawful ownership of merchandise destined to Germany. He shall be entirely free to dispose of same, subject to certain conditions, in case the owner of the goods is a German. They shall simply be sequestrated during the war. Merchandise of enemy origin shall only be sequestrated when it is at the same time the property of an enemy. Merchandise belonging to neutral shall be held at the disposal of its owner to be returned to the port of departure. As Your Excellency will observe, these measures, while depriving the enemy of important resources, respect the rights of neutrals and will not in any way jeopardize private property as even the enemy owner will only suffer from the suspension of the enjoyment of his rights during the term of hostilities. The government of the republic, 
being desirous of allowing neutrals every facility to enforce their claims, here occurred an indecipherable group of words, give the prize court, an independent tribunal, cognizance of these questions, and in order to give the neutrals as little trouble as possible it has specified that the prize court shall give sentence within eight days, counting from the date on which the case shall have been brought before it, I do not doubt, Mr. Ambassador, that the federal government, comparing on the one hand the unspeakable violence with which the German military government threatens neutrals, the criminal actions and known in maritime annals already perpetrated against neutral property and ships, and even against the lives of neutral subjects or citizens, and on the other hand the measures adopted by the allied governments of France and Great Britain, respecting the laws of humanity and the rights of individuals, will readily perceive that the latter have not overstepped their strict rights as belligerents. Finally, I am anxious to assure you that it is not and it has never been the intention of the government of the Republic to extend the action of its cruisers against enemy merchandise beyond the European seas, the Mediterranean included, sharp, British order in council declaring a blockade of German ports London, March 15th, the British order in council decreeing retaliatory measures on the part of the government to meet the declaration of the Germans that the waters surrounding the United Kingdom are a military area, was made public today. The text of the order follows, whereas, the German government has issued certain orders which, in violation of the usages of war, purport to declare that the waters surrounding the United Kingdom are a military area in which all British and allied merchant vessels will be destroyed irrespective of the safety and the lives of the passengers and the crews, and in which neutral shipping will be exposed to similar danger in view of the uncertainties of naval warfare, and whereas, in the memorandum accompanying the said orders, Neutrals are warned against entrusting crews, passengers, or goods to British or allied ships, and whereas, such attempts on the part of the enemy give to His Majesty an unquestionable right of retaliation, and whereas, His Majesty has therefore decided to adopt further measures in order to prevent commodities of any kind from reaching or leaving Germany, although such measures will be enforced without risk to neutral ships or to neutral or non-combatant life and in strict observance of the dictates of humanity, and whereas, the allies of His Majesty are associated with him in the steps now to be announced for restricting further the commerce of Germany. His Majesty is therefore pleased by and with the advice of his Privy Council to order, and it is hereby ordered, as follows, first no merchant vessel which sailed from her port of departure after March 1, 1915, shall be allowed to proceed on her voyage to any German port unless this vessel receives a pass enabling her to proceed to some neutral or allied port to be named in the pass. The goods on board any such vessel must be discharged in a British port and placed in custody of the Marshal of the Prize Court. Goods so discharged, if not contraband of war, shall, if not requisitioned for the use of His Majesty, be restored by order of the court and upon such terms as the court may in the circumstances deem to be just to the person entitled thereto. Second no merchant vessel which sailed from any German port after March 1, 1915, shall be allowed to proceed on her voyage with any goods on board laden at such port. All goods laden at such port must be discharged in a British or allied port. Goods so discharged in a British port shall be placed in the custody of the Marshal of the Prize Court, and if not requisitioned for the use of His Majesty shall be detained or sold under the direction of the Prize Court. The proceeds of the goods so sold shall be paid into the court and dealt with in such a manner as the court may in the circumstances deem to be just, provided that no proceeds of the sale of such goods shall be paid out of the court until the conclusion of peace, except on the application of a proper officer of the crown, 
unless it be shown that the goods had become neutral property before the issue of this order, and provided also that nothing herein shall prevent the release of neutral property, laid at such enemy port, on the application of the proper officer of the crown. Third every merchant vessel which sailed from her port of departure after March 1, 1915, on her way to a port other than a German port and carrying goods with an enemy destination, or which are enemy property, may be required to discharge such goods in a British or allied port. Any goods so discharged in a British port shall be placed in the custody of the Marshal of the Prize Court, and unless they are contraband of war shall, if not requisitioned for the use of His Majesty, be restored by an order of the court upon such terms as the court may in the circumstances deem to be just to the person entitled thereto, and provided that this article shall not apply in any case falling within Article 2 or 4 of this order. Fourth every merchant vessel which sailed from a port other than a German port after March 1, 1915, and having on board goods which are of enemy origin, or are enemy property, may be required to discharge such goods in a British or allied port. Goods so discharged in a British port shall be placed in the custody of the Marshal of the Prize Court, and, if not requisitioned for the use of His Majesty, shall be detained or sold under the direction of the Prize Court. The proceeds of the goods so sold shall be paid into the court and be dealt with in such a manner as the court may in the circumstances deem to be just, provided that no proceeds of the sale of such goods shall be paid out of the court until the conclusion of peace except on the application of a proper officer of the Crown unless it be shown that the goods had become neutral property before the issue of this order, and provided also that nothing herein shall prevent the release of neutral property of enemy origin on application of the proper officer of the Crown. Fifth any person claiming to be interested in or to have any claim in respect of any goods not being contraband of war placed in the custody of the Marshal of the Prize Court under this order, or in the proceeds of such goods may forthwith issue a writ in the prize court against the proper officer of the crown and apply for an order that the goods should be restored to him, or that their proceeds should be paid to him, or for such other order as the circumstances of the case may require. The practice and procedure of the prize court shall, so far as applicable, be followed mutatis mutandis in any proceedings consequential upon this order. Sixth the merchant vessel which has cleared for a neutral port from a British or allied port or which has been allowed to pass as having an ostensible destination to a neutral port and proceeds to an enemy port, shall, if captured on any subsequent voyage be liable to condemnation. Seventh nothing in this order shall be deemed to affect the liability of any vessel or goods to capture or condemnation independently of this order. Eighth nothing in this order shall prevent the relaxation of the provisions of this order in respect of the merchant vessels of any country which declares that no commerce intended for or originating in Germany, or belonging to German subjects, shall enjoy the protection of its flag. Germany's Submarine War London, March 14. The Admiralty announced tonight that the British collier in Virgile was torpedoed today off Cresswell, England, and sunk. All aboard were saved. This brings the total British losses of merchantmen and fishing vessels, either sunk or captured during the war, up to 137. Of these 90 were merchant ships and 47 were fishing craft. A further submarine casualty today was the torpedoing of the Swedish steamer Holmer off Scarborough, and the loss of the lives of six of her crew. The Admiralty announces that since March 10 seven British merchant steamers have been torpedoed by submarines. Two of them, it is stated, were sunk and of two others it is said that, the sinking is not confirmed, three were not sunk, the two steamers officially reported sunk were the Invergile and the Indian City, 
which was torpedoed off the Scilly Islands on March 12th. The crew of the Indian City was reported rescued. The two steamers whose reported sinking is not yet officially confirmed are the Florizan, which was torpedoed at the mouth of the Bristol Channel on March 11th, all of her crew being landed at Milford Haven, with the exception of one fireman, and the Andalusian, which was attacked off the Scilly Islands on March 12th. The crew of the Andalusian is reported to have been rescued. The Indian was torpedoed in the English Channel on March 11th, and has since been towed into Cherbourg. Her crew was landed at Bresham. The steamer Headlands was torpedoed on March 12th off the Scilly Islands. It is reported that her crew was saved. The steamer Hartdale was torpedoed on March 13th off South Rock. In the Irish Channel, 21 of her crew were picked up and two were lost. Supplementary to the foregoing the Admiralty tonight issued a report giving the total number of British merchant and fishing vessels lost through hostile action from the outbreak of the war to March 10th. The statement says that during that period 88 merchant vessels were sunk or captured. Of these 54 were victims of hostile cruisers, 12 were destroyed by mines, and 22 by submarines. Their gross tonnage totaled 309.945. In the same period the total arrivals and sailings of overseas steamers of all nationalities of more than 300 tons net were 4.745. 47 fishing vessels were sunk or captured during this time. 19 of these were blown up by mines and 28 were captured by hostile craft. 24 of those captured were caught on August 26, when the Germans raided a fishing fleet. Illustration, dotted portion indicates the limits of war zone defined in the German order which became effective February 18, 1915. German people not blinded by Karl Lamprecht published in New York by the German Information Service. February 3, 1915 denying flatly that the German people were swept blindly and ignorantly into the war by the headlong ambitions of their rulers the view advanced by Dr. Charles W. Eliot, President Emeritus of Harvard University, and Dr. Nicholas Murray Butler, President of Columbia Drive Karl Lamprecht, Professor of History in the University of Leipzig and world-famous German historian, has addressed the open letter which appears below to the two distinguished American scholars. Dr. Lamprecht asserts that under the laws which govern the German Empire the people as citizens have a deciding will in affairs of state and that Germany is engaged in the present conflict because the sober judgment of the German people led them to a resort to arms. Dr. C.W. Eliot, President Emeritus of Harvard University, Drive and M. Butler, President of Columbia University. Gentlemen, I feel confident that you are not in ignorance of my regard and esteem for the great American Republic and its citizens. They have been freely expressed on many occasions and have taken definite form in the journal of my travels through the United States. Published in the booklet, Americana, 1905. My sentiments and my judgment have not changed since 1905. I now refer, gentlemen, to the articles and speeches which you have published about my country and which had aroused widespread interest. I will not criticize your utterances one by one. If I did that I might have to speak on occasion with a frankness that would be ungracious. Considering the fine appreciation which both of you still feel for old Germany, it would be specially ungracious toward you, President Elliot, for in quite recent times you honored me by your ready help in my scientific labors. All I want to do is to remove a few fundamental errors in fact. Only one, I feel in duty bound to do so, since many well-disposed Americans share that error. The gravest and perhaps most widely spread misconception about us Germans is that we are the serfs of our princes. First and stay. Servile and dependent in political thought. 
That false notion has probably been dispelled during the initial weeks of the present war. With absolute certainty the German nation, with one voice and correctly, diagnosed the political situation without respect to party or creed and unanimously and of its own free will acted. But this misconception is so deep-rooted that more extended discussion is needed. I pass on to other matters. The essential point is that public opinion has free scope of development. Every American will admit that, now, public opinion finds its expression in the principles that govern the use of the suffrage. The German voting system is the freest in the world, much freer than the French, English, or American system, because not only does it operate in accordance with the principle that everyone shall have a direct and secret vote, but the powers of the state are exercised faithfully and conscientiously to carry out that principle in practice. The constitutional life of the German nation is of a thoroughly democratic character. Those who know that were not surprised that our social democrats marched to war with such enthusiasm. Already among their ranks many had fallen as heroes, never to be forgotten by any German when his thoughts turned to the noble blood which has saturated foreign soil thank God, foreign soil. Many of the socialist leaders and adherents are wearing the Iron Cross, that simple token that seems to tell you when you speak of its bearer. Now, this is a fearless and faithful soul, let it be said once and for all. He who wants to understand us must accept our conception that constitutionally we enjoy so great a political freedom that we would not change with any country in the world. Everybody in America knows that our manners and customs have been democratic for centuries, while in France and England they have been ever aristocratic. Americans, we know, always feel at home on German soil, but the Kaiser, you will say, speaks of his monarchy, therefore must the Germans be first each day. Servants of princes, first of all, as to the phrase, Fürstenstey, does not the King of England speak of his, subjects? That word irritates a German, because he is conscious that he is not a subject, but a citizen of the empire, yet he will not infer from the English King's use of the term informal utterances that an Englishman is a churl, a, servant of his King, that would be a superficial political conception, as to our princes, most of us, including the social democrats are glad in our heart of hearts that we had them, as far back as our history runs, and that is more than 2.000 years, we have had princes, they have never been more than their name, first, implies, the first and foremost of German freemen, preme inter pairs, therefore they have never acted independently, never without taking the people into counsel, that would have been contrary to the most important fundamental principles of German law, Hence our people had never been, de jure, without their representatives. Even in the times of absolute monarchy the old, estates of the realm, had their being as a representative body. And wherever and whenever these privileges were suppressed it was regarded as a violation of our fundamental rights and is so still regarded. Our princely houses are as old as our monasteries, our cities, and our cathedrals. A thousand years ago the Guelphs were a celebrated family, and the Wettines have ruled over their lands for eight centuries. In the 12th century the Wittelsbachs and Thuringians were princes under the great Kaisers of the Hohenstaufen dynasty. Among these great families the Habsburgs 13th century and the Hohenzollerns 15th century are quite young. All had their roots in Germany and belong to the country. We glory in our princes. They link our existence with the earliest centuries of our history. They preserve for us the priceless independence of our small home states. We are accused of militarism. What is this new and terrible crime? Since the years of the wars of liberation against France and Napoleon we have had what amounts practically to a universal conscription. 
only two generations later universal suffrage was introduced. The nation has been sternly trained by its history in the ways of discipline and self-restraint. Germans are very far from mistaking freedom for license and independence for licentiousness. Germany has a long past. She enjoys the inheritance of an original and priceless civilization. She holds clearly formulated ideals. To the future she has all this to bequeath and, in addition, the intellectual wealth of her present stage of development. Consider Germany's contributions to the arts, the poetical achievements of the period of Schiller and Goethe, the music of Handel, Bach, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, the thought systems of Kant, Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel. The last decade has reawakened these great men in the consciousness of the German nation, enriched by the consciousness and message of an intellectual past. Our people were moving forward to new horizons. At that moment the war hit us. If you could only have lived these weeks in Germany I do not doubt that what you would have seen would have led your ripe experience to a fervent faith in a divinely guided future of mankind. The great spiritual movement of 1870, when I was a boy growing up, was but a phantom compared to July and August of 1914. Germany was a nation stirred by the most sacred emotions, humble and strong, filled with just wrath and a firm determination to conquer a nation disciplined, faithful, and loving. In that disposition we have gone to a war and still fight. As for the slanders of which we have been the victims, ask the thousands of Frenchmen who housed German soldiers in 1870 and 1871, or ask the Belgians of Ghent and Bruges. They will give you a different picture of the Furor Teutonicus. They will tell you that the raging German generally is a good-natured fellow, ever ready for service and sympathy, who, like Parsifal, gazes forth eagerly into a strange world which the war has opened to his loyal and patriotic vision. Carl Alain Pierre-C.H.T. Reveled by John Galsworthy. From King Albert's book. In my dream I saw a fertile plain, rich with the hues of autumn. Tranquil it was and warm. Men and women. Children. And the beasts worked and played and wandered there in peace. Under the blue sky and the white clouds low hanging. Great trees shaded the fields, and from all the land there arose a murmur as from these clustering on the rose-colored blossoms of tall clover, and, in my dream, I roamed, looking into every face, the faces of prosperity, broad and well-favored of people living in a land of plenty, of people drinking of the joy of life, caring nothing for the morrow, but I could not see their eyes, that seemed ever cast down, gazing at the ground watching the progress of their feet over the rich grass and the golden leaves already fallen from the trees. The longer I walked among them the more I wondered that never was I suffered to see the eyes of any, not even of the little children, not even of the beasts. It was as if ordinance had gone forth that their eyes should be banded with invisibility. While I mused on this, the sky began to darken. A muttering of distant winds and waters came traveling. The children stopped their play. The beasts raised their heads. Men and women halted and cried to each other, The river the river is rising. If it floods, we are lost. Our beasts will drown, we, even we, shall drown. The river, and women stood like things of stone, listening, and men shook their fists at the black sky and at that traveling mutter of the winds and waters, and the beasts sniffed at the darkening air. Then, clear, I heard a voice call, Brothers, the dike is breaking. The river comes. Link arms, brothers. With the dike of our bodies we will save our home. Sisters, behind us, link arms, close in the crevices, children, the river, and all that multitude, whom I had seen treading quietly the grass and fallen leaves with prosperous feet, came hurrying, 
their eyes no longer fixed on the rich plain, but lifted in trouble and defiance, staring at that rushing blackness, and the voice called, Hasten, brothers, the dike is broken, the river floods, and they answered, Brother, we come, thousands and thousands they pressed, shoulder to shoulder men, women, and children, and the beasts lying down behind, till the living dike was formed, and that blackness came on, nearer, nearer, till, like the whites of glaring eyes, the wave crests glint in the dark rushing flood, and the sound of the raging waters was as a roar from a million harsh mouths, but the voice called, hold, brothers, hold, and from the living dike came answer, brother, we hold, then the sky blackened to night, and the terrible dark water broke on that dike of life, and from all the thin living wall rose such cry of struggle as never was heard, but above it ever the voice called, hold, my brave ones, hold, and ever the answer came from those drowning mouths, of men and women, of little children and the very beasts, brother, we hold, but the black flood rolled over and on, there, down in its dark tumult, beneath its cruel tumult, I saw men still with arms linked, women on their knees, clinging to earth, little children drifting dead, all dead, and the beasts dead, and their eyes were still open facing that death, and above them the savage water roared, but clear and high I heard the voice call, brothers, hold, death is not, we live, can Germany be starved out, an answer by 16 German specialists footnote 1, die Deutsche Volksernierung und der Englischen Eindenschrift von Friedrich Eribo, Karl Bullard, Franz Baselag, Wilhelm Kasperi, Paul Elzbacher, Hedwig Hale, Paul Crush, Robert Kaczynski, Kurt Lehmann, Otto Lemmermann, Karl Oppenheimer, Max Rubner, Kurt von Rumker, Bruno Tacky, Hermann Warmbold, and Nathan Zutz, Heraus Gegeben von Paul Elzbacher, Frieder, Bugenson, Braunschweig, 1914, from the Analyst of New York. March 1, 1915, Berlin, February 1, 1915, probably the most interesting economic problem in the world at this moment is whether England can succeed in starving out Germany, while the world at large is chiefly interested in the vast political issues involved, the question interests the Germans not only from that standpoint, but also and how keenly, from the mere bread and butter standpoint. For if Germany cannot feed its own population during the long war that its foes are predicting with so much assurance, her defeat is only a question of time. That the German government is keenly aware of the dangers of the situation is evident from the rigorous measures that it has taken to conserve and economize the food supply. After having fixed maximum prices for cereals soon after the war began, the government last week decided to requisition and monopolize all the wheat and rye in the country and allow the bakers to sell only a limited quantity of bread 2.2 pounds per capita a week to each family. It had previously taken measures to restrict the consumption of cereals for other purposes than bread making, the feeding of rye was prohibited and its use in producing alcohol was restricted by 40%. A percentage of potato flour was ordered added to a rye flour, and of the latter to a wheat flour in making bread. These are but a few of the economic measures adopted by the government since the outbreak of the war. The general opinion of the people in Germany is that the country cannot be starved out, and this opinion is asserted with a great deal of patriotic fervor, particularly by newspaper editors, the leading scientists of the country, moreover, have taken up the question in a thrill-going way and investigated it in all its bearings. A little book, Die Deutsche Volkserinnerung und der Englische Ausschlungsplan, has just been issued, 
giving the conclusions of 16 specialists in various fields, which will be briefly summarized here, economists, statisticians, physiologists, agricultural chemists, food specialists, and geologists have all taken part in producing a composite view of the whole subject, it is not a book of special contributions by individual specialists, but is written in one cast and represents the compared and boiled down conclusions of the 16 scholars. The authors by no means regard the problem of feeding Germany without foreign assistance as an easy and simple one, on the contrary, they say it is a serious one, and calls for the supreme effort of the authorities and of every individual German, and only by energetic, systematic, and continued efforts of government and people can they prevent a shortage of food from negativing the success of German arms, yet they feel bound to grapple the problem as one calling for solution by the German people alone for very small imports of food products can be expected from the neutral countries of Europe, and none at all from the United States and other overseas countries, and the small quantities that do come in will hardly be more than enough to make good the drain upon Germany's own available stocks in helping to feed the people of Belgium and Poland. The simplest statistical elements of the problem are the following, Germany, with a population of area code 68000000, was consuming food products. When the war broke out, equivalent to an aggregate of 90.420 billion calories, including 2.307.000 tons of albumin, whereas the amount now available, under unchanged methods of living and feeding, is equal to only 67.870 billion calories, with 1.543.000 tons of albumin. Thus, there will be an apparent deficit of 22.590 billion calories and 764.000 tons of albumin. On the other hand, the authors hold that the minimum physiological requirements are only 56.750 billion calories, containing 1.605.000 tons of albumin, which would give a large surplus of calories and a small deficit of albumin, but they make certain recommendations which, if carried into effect, would bring the available supply up to 81.250 billion calories and February 2nd tons of albumin. Germany raises average for 1912-13 about 4.500.000 tons of wheat and impo.